You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 9 and 10. We're going to be continuing to walk through the life of Solomon. Uh, Pastor Todd is away today, and he wanted me to tell you thank you for allowing him the uh, freedom to be away today. Brooke, his youngest daughter, is being baptized today in Iowa City. And so he is so grateful that he has the opportunity to be there and uh, just rejoice in that uh, proclamation of her faith um, there. So thank you from him uh, for allowing him to be there. Uh, we're in our First Kings chapter 9 and 10, our series on the life of Solomon. You can see our title there, The Rise in the Fall of Solomon. Gives you kind of a hint at where we're going to be going the next two weeks. Part one, we're primarily going to be looking at the rise, and the next week we'll primarily be looking at the fall of Solomon. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, First Kings chapter 9, I want to read verses 1 and 2 for you real quick. It says this, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Have you ever, uh, just before we dive into our text, I want to help you know where we're going. Have you ever had one of those moments in life um, right after you finish a huge project? You've been working on it for tons of time, put a ton of energy, resources. You've just been working on this project for so long and finally it's finished. And you're drinking a Coke, just kind of staring at it, enjoying a beverage as you kind of look at all that you've accomplished. And finally it's done, the stress is over. Maybe students, it's a big test or final or project that you've been working on. It's finally done and you're able to just admire it. So you kind of step back and look at all that you've accomplished. I have a feeling this is exactly what's going on with Solomon as we enter chapter 9. He's just finished the temple. He's just finished his house. He's finished some other projects as well, and he's done. And so he's just kind of stepping back a little bit and admiring all the work that he's done. And it is at that very moment where the Lord appears to him a second time. He's like, hey, Solomon, buddy, we need to, we need to talk. We need to have a quick conversation. Uh, those moments, right? You've all had those at certain times in your life. Those moments can be great, right? where you're standing back and looking at all that you've accomplished, those can be very God-honoring moments in your life, for sure, where you recognize in this project his goodness to you, where what you see in front of you is a testament to his mighty works through you, where you stand back amazed that God would use someone like you to accomplish something, something like that, right? Those can be great, high spiritual moments where all glory goes to God. A great example of this is Johann Sebastian Bach. Whenever he would finish a piece of music he was satisfied with, like he thought it turned out really well, he was pleased with. Whenever there was a piece of music that he accomplished, that uh, he put together, that met his standard, he would initial the bottom of it. But he wouldn't initial it JSB, Johann Sebastian Bach. He would initial it SDG, or Sole Deo Gloria. To all glory be to God. He's the one that deserves all credit for this masterpiece, this work. See, one thing he understood was that God would work through him and use the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given to him to make much of God. And he would stand back and look at these masterpieces and say, man, praise God. For all that he's done through me, I pray that this would be a masterpiece of his name and his reputation. But there's other times in those moments where you're standing back and looking at all the work you've accomplished, where pride creeps in in those moments, and you start to think how great you are. Where what you see in front of you is a testament to your mighty works and your greatness. I imagine this is the scene with God and Solomon. Solomon is staring at the Jerusalem skyline that he had just made. All the work, effort, money, resources, years that he poured into and went into this project. And he's just savoring it now. Wow, look at all that I've accomplished. And it is in that exact moment that God interacts with Solomon. This is chapter 9 and 10. God is having a conversation with Solomon and talking to him about this. 
See, this isn't the first time, verse 2 tells us this, this isn't the first time that God has had a talk with Solomon. The first occasion was in chapter 3, right before he began his rise to greatness. This time, this second appearance, commentaries say, marks the end point of his upward movement. God speaks to him again, and this conversation, this time, is, a, is warning him about the end of his reign that is about to happen. He's having a conversation with him, a final warning, telling him, if things don't go well, this is going to be done. This rise to fame, this success that you've been having, might come to an end. I imagine the conversation going somewhat like this, and I'm kind of reinterpreting the first couple of verses here. Hey, Solomon, uh, great job, buddy. But now we need to talk. Don't get proud now, Solomon. Don't stop obeying. Things aren't done. Be very careful what you do next. Don't move into retirement mode. There's still plenty to do. I am going to fulfill to you what I promised you, wisdom and riches, but don't allow your success, fame, or wealth change you or shape what you do next. It's kind of a summary of these first nine verses. Here's the outline of chapter nine to let you see where we're going to be heading. The first nine verses is God's message to Solomon, and we're going to dissect that a little bit more. And then the rest of the chapter is God's blessings to Solomon. And you're going to see how he continues to allow Solomon to prosper. But let's real quick dissect that first nine verses, the message to Solomon. If you look in verse 3, let me read verse 3 to you. It says this, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. The first section of this message to Solomon is God's unconditional blessing. In verse 3, God is telling Solomon things that will be true forever. And you'll notice there's nothing for Solomon to do in verse 3, right? There's no charge, there's no challenge to Solomon in verse 3. He's just stating facts. This is what is true. These are unconditional blessings without you, regardless of you. Things that are true without Solomon's participation. And we'll summarize verse 3 like this. God is telling Solomon about God's throne. This is my throne. My throne is forever. He later on in verses 4 through 6, he's going to describe Solomon's throne. And so if you highlight your Bible, if you underline your Bible, if you write in your Bible, you'll notice there's three possessive pronouns in verse 3. My. Highlight those, underline those, circle those, because those are going to tell us what God's kingdom is like, the eternality of his kingdom. God's throne will endure. That's what verse 3 is. And notice the possessive pronouns, my, three times. So here's, the, here's some unconditional blessings that we learn from verse 3. Number one, the greatness of God's name. In verse 3, he says, my name. My name will go on forever. My name will live on forever. I love this. And he compares that to the house, the temple that Solomon built. He says, Solomon, you did. You built this house. But the thing that makes this house great is that my name is on it. That's what makes it amazing. Don't admire the landscape thinking, man, look how great of a building I built. The greatness of the building is that my name is on it. Don't forget whose greatness it proclaims. It's not declaring your greatness to the nations, Solomon. It's declaring my greatness to the nations. I am the hope of the world, God is saying, not you. If the nations will trust in God's name, my name, they will be saved. Solomon, not, not in your name. What's unconditional, what will never change, is the greatness of God's name, his reputation, his character. The second thing we learn from verse 3, an unconditional blessing, is those who know God are blessed eternally. He talks about my eyes and my ears. Those are um, words that refer to a relationship. Someone who knows God is able to see his eyes and know God's heart. Another unconditional blessing is people who know God are blessed 
forever. He reminds them that this temple gave man access to God. God didn't need a temple. Man needed God in a temple so that they could encounter him. What God is saying is that this temple represents the presence of God to the people. It's, you want to see me, humanity, sinful humanity? You want to see me? You want to know me? I'm going to create a place, a spot, where you can know me. You can talk to me, and it's the temple. So come to my house where I reside, and you can know me. You can talk to me. You can see my eyes. You can know my heart. He refers to his eyes. He goes, you want to talk to me? Right? When you have a conversation with somebody, you sit down, you look them eye to eye. God is reminding someone that's what the temple is supposed to be. It's not a... It's not a Um, a memento to your success, Solomon. It's a place where people can see God's eyes figuratively, where they can come and have a conversation with God, sit down and talk to him face to face. He goes, you want to know my heart? You want to know me? That's what the temple is. The temple was the place where you could know the heart of God. You could, at the temple, see its beauty, its splendor, its wonder. And all of those things taught us what God loved what God desired and what God was like. He says, you want to know my heart? Come to my temple. Spend time with me. Look around. Everything about the temple declared the glory of God. It taught people what God is like. It revealed his heart. Those are the unconditionals, right? Those things will never change. It's who God is. His name will be praised And blessed are people who know him, who have opportunities to see his eyes and know his heart. And then verses 4 and 5, we're going to move into God's conditional blessings. This is where Solomon gets involved and where everything can change. Things that can change because Solomon's participation was required. So we just talked about verse 3, God's throne can never change. Now, verses 4 and 5, we're going to talk about Solomon's throne and how it can change, how it is conditional. Things that can change because Solomon's participation was required. He says, if you walk before me, right? It's an if-then clause. If, Solomon, you walk before me with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, if you obey, then... Your throne over Israel will be established forever. Solomon, you do have a throne right now. You do have a role, a role. You do have a reputation. You do, but that's conditional. That is not eternal. My throne is eternal. So this is what we've learned from verses 3 through 5. God's throne is eternal. Solomon's throne is conditional. And then we move to the haunting section. Verses 6 through 9. God's haunting warning to Solomon. He just gave him the conditional blessings. Now he's going to tell him what happens if he doesn't obey. And he refers to three things. He tells Solomon that his land is, is conditional, that the promised land, Jerusalem, is conditional. The house, so the temple, is conditional. And Solomon's reputation. Three things that he'll lose if he doesn't obey. He says, but if you turn aside from following me, If you go and serve other gods and worship them, you'll lose this land. This place that you love so much, this home of yours, they've been wandering the desert for a lot of their history. This place that you you love so much, this uh, place of, of rest, that's conditional. This promised land has always been conditional to Israel. If you disobey, you'll lose the land. The next one, he says, you will lose this house. The very thing that Solomon is observing and loving and looking at right now and and admiring, he says, this is temporary. This house, this is temporary. The blessing of my presence to you in this form, that's conditional. You can lose that. Your temple that you built, that's conditional. And then the last one, he says, you'll lose your reputation. You know how Israel's known around the world right now because of Solomon's wisdom and its riches, the great reputation that Israel has right now, being a light to the nations? That's conditional. He says, if you walk away from me, instead of Israel being a blessing to the nations, you know what'll happen? You'll become a joke to the nations. 
The nations of the world will laugh at you. It says the nations of the world will hiss at you because they'll know the story. They'll know that Israel at one time obeyed and loved God and he blessed them and then they gave it all up. They gave up all the blessings and joy that they had and they gave it up to serve and worship other gods and now they're nothing. And we just laugh at the nation of Israel. They're a big joke. He goes, you'll lose all of those. Your house will turn to a house of rubble. Your reputation will become a joke. All of those are conditional. So Solomon, be careful. If you obey your throne, your reputation, yeah, it'll stay. But if you lose, if you walk away, if you worship other gods, you'll lose all of those things, but only God's throne will remain. So let's wrap all this section up. God is reminding us that his name, his throne, and his reputation will always last forever. But our name, our thrones, our reputations are blessings from God that he gives to his children as he sees fit. These blessings come and go to accomplish his purposes in the world. And what we're supposed to learn is that our happiness and joy must not come from our name, our throne, our reputation, because those are fleeting. But our joy must come from his name, his throne, and his reputation in the world. It's kind of like, what's most important, Solomon? Is it what you've established here on earth, your little throne, or, or God's throne? Is his name, his reputation, is that the most important? If God's reputation is the most important, then you'll obey. But if your reputation, your little throne is the most important thing, you're going to walk away and you'll lose, you'll lose it all. The rest of chapter 9 is this outpouring of God's blessings on Solomon. It just goes from paragraph to paragraph to paragraph, telling us about all these wonderful things that God is allowing to happen in the nation of Israel. We're still on the rise of Solomon. Next week, we'll look at the fall of Solomon. We're still kind of on the rise. The rest of chapter 9 and 10 will show us earthly blessings that God pours out on Solomon. But let's be astute readers, okay? We must be careful how we interpret the next two chapters. Because it's possible to read chapters 9 and 10 and come to some bad conclusions about fame and wealth and those things. So a few things before we dive in, a few things I don't think we are meant to learn from the rest of chapters 9 and 10, okay? These will make sense. Let me keep moving along. These, here's what we're not supposed to learn. These blessings are not supposed to teach us, number one, how amazing Solomon is. In the rest of chapters 9 and 10, Solomon is going to look pretty awesome. Everything he touches is going to have success. He's going to have the Midas touch, right? Everything, just success and blessings and money and more money and gold than he knows what to do with. And you might come to the conclusion that Solomon is awesome. Don't. It's the point of these chapters are not to show us how awesome Solomon is, but to show us how faithful, kind, and loving God is to a sinner like Solomon. And these chapters will show us his sinfulness. We just have to look pretty carefully. Number two, something don't learn in the next two chapters. How awesome it is to be rich. In chapters 9 and 10, you might come to the conclusion, oh, to be rich. This is awesome. Look at all this sweet stuff that's happening to Solomon, all this money, all these people loving him and adoring him. People are coming from the edge of the world to see him. Oh, if only I was rich, right? Don't. That's, we're not supposed to learn this from chapters 9 and 10, and we'll see why. And then number three, don't learn this. God always blesses obedient people with riches and fame. It's possible to come to that false conclusion. Look at Solomon. If I'm just like Solomon, if I just ask for wisdom, if I just obey and build him a house and, and, and obey religious observances, then he always blesses people with riches and fame. No, that's not true. And we will see that in this story today. So instead, as we dive into the rest of 9 and 10, which is just this outpouring of God's blessing, I think we're supposed to read the rest of chapters 9 and 10, this section, while holding our breath. Can I explain that for a second? Why are we supposed to read 9 and 10 while holding our breath? Have you ever, let me use an illustration, have you ever watched a movie and everyone is on vacation 
They're having a great time. Everybody's having the time of their life. It's their best day ever. And you think while you're watching this movie, I've seen movies like this before. Things are going too good. Something is about to go wrong and I know it. Because it's too early in the movie for and they lived happily ever after. You ever seen a movie like that? Come up with one in your own mind. I came up with one. See if we came up with the same one, okay? You're like, ah, this is too good. There's always a problem, right? Okay, the one I came up with was 1975 Jaws and Chief Brody, okay? So let me tell you the story real quick. So everybody's literally having a day at the beach, right? It is the best time of their life. The water's warm. The sun is shining. Everybody is having a great time. But Chief Brody has this look on his face. Everyone is having a day at the beach, but Chief has this look on his face because he knows something isn't right. He knows something is about to go wrong. I think this look is exactly how we should read chapters 9 and 10. Waiting with bated breath for the shark to strike. Because we know things are going really well. Something's about to happen. And here's why. If you remember back, In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, Israel asks for a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but I'm going to tell you what a king better be like. In verses 14 through 20, lay out for us, so you can throw that up there and you can turn to in your own Bibles. In verses 14 through 20, lay out for us what a good Israelite king better look like. Things he better do and things he better not do. Verses 14 to 20 remind us some warnings to the future kings of Israel and what what they should and shouldn't do. Let this text, let's just leave that up here for a second. Let's let this text be the dark shadow under the water on the beach day of the blessings in 1 Kings 9 and 10. Does that make sense? So all of us, let's be Chief Brody. And as you see these blessings being poured out, be the skeptic on the beach like, I don't know. And your wife's going to say, no, relax. It's, everything's going great. It's having the time of your life. And you're like, what's that dark shadow out there? Don't worry about it. It's just bluefish. You're like, sure, sure, sure. Okay, so allow this text to kind of remind you about what Solomon should be up to and how he should be, how he should be acting right now. So let's read the rest of the section with a little bit of skepticism. Because we understand that at any moment, things could radically change and all Israel's successes could go away. Or because these blessings could quickly become Solomon's downfall. It is possible for him to get proud of these successes and turn his heart from God. Both of these things are things we know and have already seen in Israel's past. And we know that they could happen again. So as we read these blessings, enjoy them, read them, see the lavish love of God on the nation of Israel, but have a little bit of skepticism. So let's finish looking at chapter 9, God's blessings on Israel, and let's, let's understand what we're supposed to learn from this. So as we read chapter 9, you will see, okay, if you're, a, if you're a astute reader, you will see spots of weakness in Solomon's armor. They're pretty noticeable to us, but probably not to him. If, you, as we're reading this, you see one, underline it or circle it or highlight it, and we'll talk about some of these weaknesses in just a little bit. Just take note of them for now. So verses 10 through 14, there's this story about Hiram, and Solomon is just having success wherever he goes. He's having political and foreign success. He's trading with other nations. He's making gobs and gobs of money. All of his investments are going well. All of his trades are in his favor. Things are just going really well. But he kind of treats Hiram poorly. Note that. The second piece, verses 15 to 22, Solomon is having economic and domestic success. He's implementing slave labor. He's taking the nations that they defeated and taking their captives and bringing them back to Jerusalem and Israel, and he's putting them to work, which is allowing the Israelites not to be slaves or not to work, and things are going really well. They're building big buildings. They're having success. The nation is growing and booming and all these things are going well. In verse 25, Israel is having religious success or 
religious health. They're obeying the, the religious observances. They're keeping what they're supposed to be doing. They're being obedient to the law. And then verses 26 through 28, they're having, Israel's having commercial and international trade success. They have a naval fleet and the fleet of ships are going to the edges of the world and they're getting gold and they're bringing gold back to Solomon and just everything Solomon is doing is working. That's the rest of chapter nine. Everything is just a testament to God's blessing on Israel. But did you notice a couple weaknesses in his armor? Overall, chapter 9 is a testament to God giving success on the life of Solomon in spite of Solomon. And this teaches us about the character and kindness of God. We will learn next week that Solomon isn't that great of a guy. And as I said earlier, we can for sure see hints of that in these chapters today. But what we do see in these chapters is a God who loves immeasurably. He loves his people. He blesses his people in spite of his people. All right, let's move into chapter 10. Again, it's more blessings. It's another entire chapter of God just pouring blessings out on Israel. And as we move into chapter 10, I believe, as I've studied this, I believe that chapter 10 is beautiful because it sheds light on the question that maybe you've asked. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why does God bless people? I think chapter 10 answers that question. I know for sure that David asked that question in Psalms. Solomon asked that question in Proverbs. Why? Why does God bless? Why does he decide to give people stuff and just lavishly bless them? Why? I think chapter 10 is going to help us understand it. So here's the outline of chapter 10. Verses 1 through 13 is this amazing story about the queen of Sheba. And I think what it teaches us is the purpose of God's blessing, why he blessed Israel. And then the rest of the chapter is the potential pitfalls of God's blessings. And again, we've got to read carefully, but you're going to see tons and tons of blessings, and we need to kind of learn what's, what, what could potentially be the problem, what's happening in Solomon's heart during all these times. So let's look at Queen of Sheba, verses 1 through 13, or the purpose of Solomon's wisdom and wealth, the Queen of Sheba. I love this story. I'm going to get excited here in just a second. I apologize. This story about the Queen of Sheba is just beautiful. Let me summarize it for you, okay? Uh, The first thing that happens is the Queen of Sheba decides to come to Israel, to Jerusalem, to see Solomon because she wants to know if what she has heard about Solomon is true. His reputation, his fame is is spreading to the edge of the world. And no doubt she hears about this, this famous queen, rich queen. She hears about it and is like, really? This guy is how great? How much does he have? What is going on? So purely out of curiosity, she goes to Israel to test Solomon. She's a skeptic. She wants to know, is this true, this reputation I'm hearing? Later on, Queen of Sheba is amazed, so amazed at what she sees and what she learns and the answer she gets from Solomon. She's so amazed that it literally says she is speechless. This woman who has everything and has seen everything comes to Israel and is just like, I haven't seen this before. This is beyond what I imagined. This is better than I could have ever imagined. Oh oh my goodness, this is beautiful. And then lastly, Queen of Sheba praises, not Solomon, she praises the God of Solomon and the God of Israel for what she's seen. Beautiful story. We're going to dig a little bit deeper now, but I want to, before we do that, I want to help you see, I think the story of the Queen of Sheba is a perfect example for us of how conversion usually works. So think about your own story, your own testimony, your faith conversion, how you came to believe in Jesus and love God. I think Queen of Sheba is a great example of how that typically works. Because at the beginning of her story, she's merely a skeptic with curiosity. She hears about this God of Israel. She hears about this people that are God's people that he loves. And she's hearing about this group of individuals, and she's just like, what? What are they so excited about? What what are they getting so excited about? What's going on? She's just purely a skeptic. Her skepticism and her curiosity gets her to the point where she goes and checks it out, right? A lot of times, that's how 
your conversion worked. You didn't start an eager believer and faith-filled. You started out as a skeptic. Like, what is Christianity? What, what are those people doing on Sunday morning at church every week? What is going on at that lighthouse? Like, why do people read their Bibles, right? You're just a skeptic and maybe a little curious. But then your curiosity and skepticism moves you to amazement and wonder. Maybe one time you just came and checked out church. And you're like, I'm going to go see what they do. And you're like, oh, okay. That's pretty cool. God's pretty cool. This book is pretty cool, right? And you kind of move to amazement and wonder. And this is what happens with the Queen of Sheba. She's speechless. She finally sees this relationship with God. And she's like, whoa, this is better than I expected. But then conversion doesn't happen at amazement and wonder. It always has to move one more step. The third step is culminates in faith and worship. And that's exactly what happens with the Queen of Sheba. She goes from amazement and wonder to faith and worship. She's so in love with God and what she sees. She gives, generously gives. She worships. She says, how amazing is God, the God of Yahweh. He is the one that has blessed Israel. And that's where true faith conversion happens. You see, no one's saved at the curiosity and skeptic phase, right? Just curious about Christianity. And to be honest with you, nobody's saved at merely the amazement and wonder phase. Being a youth pastor, we kind of see this a lot. We'll go to a retreat or a camp or an all-nighter, be a big fun event, and you get all these kids to come and they're like, that was awesome, that was so funny, that was great, the speaker was awesome. They kind of get this amazement and wonder of youth group or church. It's not true conversion. True conversion is when it culminates in faith and worship. And I think that's what the Queen of Sheba exactly shows us. True conversion always leads to true faith. Faith in who God is and what he promised. And, and worship. She gives and she worships him by bowing down to him. As I've been studying this, I've just been captivated by this story There's been a few things about these 13 verses that have just blown my mind that I want to share with you real quick. I might be meddling a little bit here, but I think this story is fascinating. I want to point out a few things. One of the most amazing things I've learned about the story of the Queen of Sheba is that from this story, we see a woman who has everything. She's the Queen of Sheba, Queen of the South, who has everything, we learn from her reputation. Yet even though she has everything, has seen everything, she travels the world to look for something she knows she doesn't have. She has everything and yet is empty. She's seen everything and anything she wants she can have, yet she feels empty and she's willing to go look for it. Something she has never seen I love verse 5. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. After seeing Israel's amazing blessings from the God of Israel, that's when she becomes breathless. Like, this is what I've been looking for. This is that thing that I don't have. I didn't even know what I came looking for. But now that I'm here, wow. Your God is amazing. This relationship you have with Yahweh, this God of yours, I don't have that. This is absolutely amazing. She says, you people have something that we don't have, and I want it. Another thing that's blown, that just taught me so much about this story of the Queen of Sheba is verse 8. Look at verse 8. The Queen of Sheba understood the tremendous blessing servants have. Think about this. Servants have who worship and serve an amazing king. It's, I love what she says. I got to read it for you. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. What, is she, what does she know that we could learn from? See, I think what the Queen of Sheba knows is how beautiful and how amazing it is for even servants who worship a beautiful king, an awesome king. This helps us understand why Paul, in the New Testament, in the majority of his letters, he starts his letters off by calling himself a slave of God or a servant of God. Now, that kind of is a, is a you know, term that we ought to be careful with saying today. But the Queen of Sheba understood that even the servants of 
this king. Even the servants of Solomon are blessed. And so for us today to be called servants or slaves of God is not something that we should frown upon or look down upon because we should understand how blessed we are to serve an amazing and beautiful king. A king who's far greater than King Solomon was. I think there's something so profound in verse 8. And the last thing I think I've learned from this is the queen of Sheba somehow knows where all the credit belongs. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, she doesn't, I don't know how she does this, obviously the sovereignty of God, but verse 9, the queen of Sheba doesn't point to Solomon and say, this is the greatness that I found. It's Solomon. No. She sees that the, the God of Israel and, and knows that this is exactly the greatness of Israel. Somehow she comes to Israel, comes to Jerusalem, meets Solomon, hears all of his answers, sees all of his blessings, and she comes to the conclusion, you have an awesome God. Isn't that beautiful? She's able to see through all the blessings and see the giver of all the blessings. And she puts her faith in him and worships him and serves him with her life. Man, so beautiful. We're going to talk about the Queen of Sheba in just a little bit. But just for now, just enjoy that section and see the amazement and the wonder of how Israel should have been behaving all along. They were meant to be a light to the nations. This special relationship that they had with Israel, this should have been happening all the time. Nations of people of the world coming to Israel and seeing the amazing relationship with God. But let's finish out chapter 10. Chapter 10 from verses 14 through 29 is again just another bucket full of blessings that God pours on to the nation of Israel. But again, I want us to read carefully, kind of like Chief Brody. I want us to be careful as we read this section because I think there's some potential pitfalls that Solomon is falling into as he receives all of these blessings. And I want to point them out for you. Solomon's great wealth, verses 14 through 29. In this section of verses, we read more of the amazing blessings that God pours out on Solomon's life. His staggering riches, his amazing worldwide fame, and his uncomparable power. But as we read this section, I think there are some things that should catch our eye as big warnings against Solomon. So three pitfalls, three potential pitfalls of success, blessings, riches, and fame. First one is in verse 17 of chapter 10. It says, and all the king, and sorry, and the king put the shields in the house of the forest of Lebanon. All the king's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the forest of, Le- of Lebanon were of pure gold. I think the first thing we learn is there's a potential pitfall of hoarding what we receive instead of blessing others. Solomon goes on this rampage of just collecting tons and tons of gold, and he has this love for shields. And so he's just making tons and tons of shields out of gold, and he's just storing them in this house of Lebanon. Talks about his house and how every drinking cup, every um, vessel was made of pure gold, and nobody drank out of silver. Silver was worthless, and all of his house was made out of pure gold. And if we're careful, we see a huge pitfall here that Solomon began to hoard and hold on to and build these storehouses of his precious stuff instead of using it to bless other nations. He became a hoarder of his possessions instead of a man who understood that his blessings were meant to love the world and care for the world. And I think that's a potential pitfall many of us fall into sometimes, the idea of hoarding instead of blessing with what God has given us. The second potential pitfall is found in verse 24. It says this, And the whole earth sought the presence of... Does it say God there? No. It says the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon. Again, I think we've got to read into this a little bit and see what this potential pitfall is. But I think the second potential pitfall is using the blessings we have received to make much of our name instead of the name of God. And no doubt Solomon is fighting this war. He's stuck in this trap a little bit. It's possible that he is allowing all this riches, wealth, and fame. And it's kind of going to his head a little bit. And as the world comes to talk to him, he's like, yeah, that's right. I am that great. You're lucky to come and find me and come and talk to me. I don't know. 
I don't know if this is a struggle for you guys. I'm not sure. But I know for a fact that this is a, is a struggle for many preachers and pastors. I can tell you that for sure. A very common story that happens to pastors and preachers is that they have a little bit of success, a little bit of blessing from God. Things are going well in their church and ministries. Their churches are growing. Things are going well. And the next thing we know is these pastors have multi-million dollar homes. They have a book signing tour. They're traveling the nations promoting their book. They start a 501c3 in their own name. And none of those are inherently wrong, right? We know that. But they are a potential pitfall. Where all of a sudden the success and the blessings you receive, you start to believe. You start to think, I am great. Man, this church is grateful for, they should be grateful for me. They understand what a blessing I am to this place? Man, all these pats on the back are so true. You're welcome, right? And all of a sudden, these blessings that were from God to your people are still from God, but are about you, and you start promoting yourself. A pastor friend of mine once told me, Travis, don't you dare believe the pats on the back. I don't think I, I understood what he was saying years ago, but I think I'm starting to, that it's just a potential pitfall where instead of realizing all these blessings and gifts are from God, you start to forget where they came from, start to put a lot of credit on your own self, and as we'll see, Solomon's falling into this trap. The third potential pitfall that I think is in our text is the endless pursuit of more. From this section, you can sense that Solomon's large supply of gold is starting to take over his life. And it never seems to be enough. As I've read through this section so many, so many times, it just seems like there's an addiction here. Solomon is traveling the world, sending out ships, making deals, and it's never enough. He's always doing more and more deals and more ships, and it's just a con continual mess of getting more. It reminds me of the story of the Midas touch. You familiar with that story? There's this king that so badly wants more gold that he asks for something that eventually ruins his life. The ability that allows him to turn everything he touches into gold, which will eventually include his own daughter. I have wondered about this question for a long time. I wonder if you've ever wondered about this question too. Why don't hobbies stay hobbies? Why do our hobbies tend to become addictions? Is that just me? Do you feel that way at all? You start this fun activity or thing, just something you do on the side when you have free time. The next thing you know, you're having weird dreams about it. And like it's all that's on your mind. And you're spending more money on Amazon than you ever thought you would. And you're like, what is going on? I've got to stop this. Do you ever notice that hobbies don't like staying hobbies? They love to become addictions. We see this narrative happening in Solomon's life. What was once a blessing from God is now taking over. In chapter 10, he's collecting gold. In chapter 11, he's collecting wives. And we're going to start to see that this, is, this will be his downfall. So let me try to, just in a couple minutes, wrap this all up. I've kind of told you the narrative of chapters 9 and 10. I kind of want to make it all make sense. What can we learn from chapters 9 and 10. A couple things. Number one, God's greatest blessing to you and to me is himself, not his stuff. See, that's really easy to say, right? Even as I was writing it, like, yep, that one's simple. It's not, though. It's so easy to say and so difficult to live out. God's greatest blessing to us is himself, not his stuff. You see, we will only be truly happy and content when we realize he is the source of true happiness. If we pursue stuff, we will never find true joy or happiness. Isn't that true? Maybe you've heard this famous quote. Those who love money always feel poor, but those who love God never lack anything. That's so true. There's never an end to money. You never find its end. But when you love God, you have 
everything you need. Number two, what can we learn from chapters 9 and 10? Blessings we receive from God were always and are always meant to be used for God, not for you. See, just as Israel's blessings were meant to be a light to the world of the love of God, the Queen of Sheba story, right? Like, wow, what is going on in Israel? I got to go find out about this. Wow, you have an awesome God. That was the point. But so many times in our lives, instead of pointing people to where the blessings come, we love to point people towards ourselves. Our lives are meant to point people to a loving God, not ourselves. We're arrows, right? You've heard that before. Our lives are supposed to be arrows pointing to God. People talk about you, what's different? I have a relationship with God. There's nothing special about me. If you knew me like I knew me, you'd probably hate me. All I have is an amazing relationship with God. And the third thing I think we're supposed to learn is that our ultimate future blessing, heaven, eternal life, our ultimate future blessing, eternal life, is dependent upon God's character, God's faithfulness, and God's reputation, not ours. Heaven's not dependent upon you. Heaven, eternal life with him, is dependent upon God. Can you imagine the stress we would feel if eternal life was riding on how well we pull off this life? If there was a scale and I had to be at the 51% marker to go to heaven. Imagine that stress. If that's the story, if that's the narrative, that's death. The beauty of Christianity is that the end of our story isn't determined by anything That happens in the next 10 to 60 years, but in the faithful character and promises of God. Doesn't that let you breathe? My love for God, God's love for me, like it's not about me. It's not about my actions. It's not about my obedience. And I'm not being pulling it off. God's love for me is about him, his character, his reputation, his obedience, his fulfillment, not mine. Man, that allows you to breathe. And then serve and live for God. So that's, I think, what we're supposed to learn about chapters 9 and 10. I told you I wanted to say one more thing about queen, the Queen of Sheba. Queen of Sheba, I think, is a beautiful story of the gospel. And I already alluded to that, but I want to mention it one more time. Um, I don't know if you know about this, but the Queen of Sheba is only mentioned one more time in the Bible. She is talked about in First Chronicles which is a retelling of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So the same story of the Queen of Sheba is in Chronicles. But she also comes up in the Gospels. I don't know if you know this or not. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 11. She's in Matthew chapter 12, 42, and Luke eleven thirty one. 31. It's pretty much the same verse. And I want to end on the Gospel real quick. The Queen of Sheba's testimony. What we learn about her in the Gospels. In Luke 11, chap, uh, chapter 11, verse 31, it says this. The queen of the south, this is Queen Sheba, Queen of Sheba, she will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, or but behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I love that. And it's not real clear, so let me help you clear it up a little bit. This text, Luke 11, and our text today teaches us that because of the queen of Sheba's faith, because of her faith, she is counted as a daughter of God. She is not a daughter of God because of her wealth, her fame, or earthly success, but because she believed and worshipped the God of Solomon. The queen of Sheba is a pagan queen, a queen from another nation, not an Israelite, not a Jew, not one of chosen race, chosen people. She's a pagan queen, hears about the wonders of God, comes to Israel, sees and knows and learns about God, puts her faith, worships God. Because of that, she is called, declared a daughter of God. Nothing to do with her wealth, fame, or earthly success, but because of her faith and worship of God. Luke 11 then tells us how we can be like her. If we, 
like Queen of Sheba, place our faith in the truly great king, King Jesus, we will also be counted as children of God and will enjoy him and the benefits of being his children forever. The ironic, hilarious, funny thing that I've learned about 1 Kings 9 and 10 is that the one we are supposed to emulate in 1 Kings 9 and 10 is not Solomon. The one, if there's anyone to emulate in 1 Kings 9 and 10, it's the Queen of Sheba. The one who is not a child of God, who receives faith and becomes a child of God, who is willing to set aside or not care about her wealth, her fame, her success, because she understands that faith in God is greater than riches. That's what she learns, and she's willing to worship and give her life to God because she realized he's the thing she's been searching for her whole life. So I have a question for you as we end today. Do you have faith in Christ? Maybe more pointed. Do you have no faith in riches? Riches will do nothing for you. They can't save you. They can't, they they fail you every single time. But faith in Christ will count you, will credit you as a child of God. Do you have no faith in you? Do you have no faith in your little throne on earth, your little reputation on earth, your little riches on earth? Do you have no faith in that? Because it'll do nothing for you. But if, like the Queen of Sheba, you have faith in God, in his character, his throne, his reputation, his fame, you will be counted as a child of God and spend eternity with him forever. So do you have faith in Christ? Do you know that you're nothing and you need a great savior? Do you know that you need one thing and that is a relationship with God? Our take-home truth today is this, and I hope it summarizes it well for us. You see, God's love for Israel and for you wasn't conditional and isn't conditional upon the past, present, or future. But rather, God's love is foundational to our past, our present, and our future. And it is ultimately displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. How do we know God loves us? Look at his son. Look at the old rugged cross. God loved us so much that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And yet so many times we exchange a relationship with God for blessings of God, things, stuff. So now, let's worship the truly great king that is the only one worthy of our faith and admiration. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.